The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Acts chapter 21, this morning we begin in verse 17, a message I've called Tempest in the Temple. Acts 21, verse 17. Let's do something a little differently. Would you stand one more time as we read from the Word of God? Acts 21, beginning in verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believed, and they are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, and that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then shall we do? Paul, what are we going to do? These things are being said about you among the Jews in Jerusalem who follow Christ. We've got a problem. What should we do? Father, as we open the word and look at it, we pray now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey. Let us be doers of the word, not merely hearers. And Father, I ask for grace upon grace as we tackle this difficult passage in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Rumors, innuendos, false accusations, outright, outright lies. That's what Paul was faced with. I, I mean, rumor, innuendo, accusations, false accusations, outright lies are being spread about Paul. And uh, the same thing happens today in our culture, in our world. I, I mean, there are rumors that float around, there are innuendos that go out, there are false accusations that are made, and there are outright lies that are told. And uh, there are numerous places where we see these things happening. Uh, it happens in the church. I mean, uh, if you read on the Internet, you know it's true, right? So you have to respond to that. Uh, but here, here are several things that happened in, in recent years. Uh, this was the logo for Procter & Gamble. Uh, this was a logo, and there was a rumor, a false accusation, an innuendo that went around mostly through the evangelical churches that Procter & Gamble's CEO was a Satanist. They were donating much of their money to that, and uh, it's, it's expressed in their logo because, as you can see, the man in the moon who's on that logo has a horn at the top, a horn at the bottom, and uh, those are six inverted sixes, and uh, obviously that has to be a satanic emblem. In fact, the guy went on the Phil Donahue show back in the 1990s and purported to be a Satanist. The problem is none of that's true. I mean, I received email after email back in the 90s about this. Pastor Gary, you're going to say something about Procter & Gamble, you're going to do something. And I, I don't know, I probably got 30, 40 emails about that. And what I've learned is never react too quickly to anything like that. Because here's the reality, that logo was developed in 1851. The most popular art at that day was the man in the moon. Uh, those are just uh, curly cues at the end, or, or, or curly cues where the sixes are, and that was the way the man of the moon reported the stars there were 13 stars representing the 13 colonies, but yet that innuendo, that false accusation, that outright lie was spread among mostly church people. Eventually, if you, go, if you Google up Procter & Gamble's logo now, they changed it back in the 90s because of all that happened and spent millions of dollars in rebranding. It's, it's tragic those things happen. Here's one. How many of you saw this one? How many? This is supposedly the Nephilim, the Nephilim, the people out of Genesis 6, the giants. Now, how many of you saw this? A bunch of you, bunch of you better raise your hand because you sent it to me, okay? 
You said, man, Pastor Gary, can you believe what they found? Look at this, more biblical evidence of what's there. Well, you do a little reading about that. There was actually an archaeology club in the Northeast in New England that had a contest to see who could put together a Photoshop thing that would fool the most people. A lot of you were fooled. I mean, it's amazing. That thing traveled. I bet I got that email at least 50 times. People saying, gosh, look at what's happened. They found Nephilim in Greece is what it said. Well, first of all, they wouldn't have been in Greece if you know anything about geography. And I mean, it was just a mess that took place out there. And, and then there's a, 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 a rumor, a false accusation, outright lie about this one. Now, how many of you heard that under the Obama administration, we took in God we trust off of the coins? I mean, how many of you at least heard that? Yeah. How many of you sent me an email? I know you're not going to raise your hand because you're too embarrassed right now. Because, I mean, you know, I got that email probably 200 times. I mean, can you believe what's happening right now? They've taken, and God, we trust our coins. Well, do you see it there? That's the new $1 bill, or $1 coin. Do you see it there? No, but if you turn and look at the edge of that coin, it says quite clearly, in God we trust. It was never taken off the coin, but yet that's a rumor, an innuendo, a false accusation, a lie that was purported, especially among believers. I'm just saying, be careful. Be careful. Uh, here, here, here's another one. This is on Life magazine. What, what happened to Lincoln's body? You, you can see an old photograph. I mean, Lincoln's body, after he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, his body was dug up two times. Did you know that? Dug up the first time because there, were, there was a false belief out there that uh, he had not been shot. Actually, he had been poisoned, and so they dug up his body to make him a shot. There was a second accusation that occurred 14 years later that said it wasn't really his body in, in the coffin, and so they dug it up, much to his son's uh, dismay and objections. They dug it up a second time to make sure it was his body in the casket. It was. He was buried in Springfield, Illinois, but twice because of rumor, accusations, innuendos, false reports, gossip. Twice Lincoln's body was built up. There was a nasty rumor floating around. In fact, if you look at my Facebook page, several folks Facebooked me on this, and many of you sent me emails on this saying uh, that (laughs) bluebell trucks are... And several of you sent me that. That is a lie. It's a false accusation. It's in your window. It hasn't happened yet. Believe me, I'm keeping close tabs on it. (laughs) But yet you go to my Facebook page, you'll see four different folks posted it and said, Pastor Gary, finally you get some bluebell. And uh, that's a nasty rumor is what that is. It's not true. Well, here's Paul. He becomes the object of rumor, false accusation, innuendo, and outright lie that seeks to defame him and attack his character. He arrives in Jerusalem and he's hit by a storm. He's actually hit by two storms. The first storm is by the believing Jews. These are Jews who place their faith in Jesus. Remember, all the way back at Pentecost, thousands believed. And here it's going to tell us many thousands more believe. And he's going to be hit by a storm of Judaizers. That's Jews who reject Christ, but they can't stand Paul. And so he's going to hit by these, get hit by these dual storms, vicious attacks, but they weren't unexpected. I mean, over and over in Paul's journeys, Luke has shown us that uh, every place he goes, they warn him, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, be persecuted. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, something bad is going to happen. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, there's going to be a problem. But he went to Jerusalem anyway. And we're going to look at why he went at the end of the sermon. The attacks were based upon rumors, false accusations, and outright lies. Well, the good news is it begins with a victorious reunion. I mean, having just read that section in verse 17, Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem. He's been headed there the entire time on his third missionary journey. He's been away at least three years, and now he comes back. 
And the following day, he meets with James and all the elders. And uh, I love verse 19. He related to them one by one the things that God was doing among the Gentiles. And when they heard this, they began to glorify God. So, so here's the setting. Paul comes in from the third missionary journey. He's back in Jerusalem. And uh, the, the brothers meet with him. And there's this exciting reunion. You can see hugs and kisses and, and favorite foods being cooked and all these things happening. Some of you had college students come in for the summer. And your family, you know what that reunion's like. You know what reunion's like or at holidays when soldiers come in from deployment, when uh, missionaries come back from furlough. Paul's been gone for three years as this grand reunion, this homecoming. And his report is filled with news of what God has done. God is bringing Gentiles to faith. The kingdom is being expanded and God is being glorified. I can imagine there were shouts of praise, there were tears of joy, and there were songs of worship. I mean, this is an exciting time in the life of the church. Great things are happening. The church is growing. Not only Jews, but now Gentiles have come to faith. And Paul brings this report and the elders and those gathered together are praising God for what he's doing. I mean, it's an exciting time in the life of the church. A couple of things to note here. First of all, James is the head of the church in Jerusalem now. Early on it was Peter, now this is James. And by the way, this is not James, the brother of John. We saw earlier in, uh, in, in Acts, it should be Acts chapter 12, verse 3, actually, that James, the brother of John, was put to death with a sword. He was one of the first martyrs of the church. Herod had him killed. This is James. That's not who we're talking about here. He's dead. Obviously, he can't be the one leading the church in Jerusalem. Years later, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the author of the Epistle of James, a book of James that we have later in our Bible. Second thing to note here. You see that James is the leader of the church. And the second thing to note is that Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and we've looked at this the last three weeks, with a very specific purpose in mind. His purpose was to bring money from the Gentile churches and to give them to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. It's quite interesting that Luke never talks about the offering. Now I'm assuming when Paul explained what God had done, that uh, certainly he explained the ministry of the churches in Macedonia, Greece, Asia Minor, that they had picked up the offering, he gave the money to the brothers so they could use them in the church. But it's quite interesting. I mean, the whole way Paul's been journeying, journeying, journeying towards Jerusalem to deliver the money, but there's no specific mention of it. I, I would assume that, uh, that they, when he talked about this, he gave them the money, and part of the reason they were glorifying God is because he had supplied for some of their needs. So it's a great time and a victorious reunion. Let me give you a warning. Whenever you experience a spiritual high, so to speak, be aware of spiritual attacks that may be coming. I mean, you can imagine the excitement in this room. It'd be like somebody come back from the mission field and reporting revival to us, how thousands of people were saved and how God was expanding the kingdom and all these great things that were taking place. And it would be a spiritual high for us. It's like when you go away to a conference or you go away to a camp or our young people that go to impact, we warn them when they come back after two weeks of intense, you know, week of training, week of impact, you come back spiritually high. Or maybe your home group has seen someone come to Christ or you've experienced some type of mission together and and it's been exciting. Your hearts are knit together those of us that just went to Israel, you come back, it's a tremendous spiritual experience. And so you, you experience something like that, and all of a sudden you're in the spiritual high. Satan loves to come in and undermine you. And that's kind of what happens here. In fact, if we could somehow put this in the setting of a movie, I would imagine as they're glorifying God in the background, we would hear foreboding music. Because what's going to happen next 
is that in the midst of glorifying God, they say, Paul, we got a problem. But we got a problem. If you look at verse 20, now the good news is Paul will have a virtuous response to this problem. But they said, Paul, we've got a problem. It says, look at verse 20, they were glorifying God. And then they said to him, you see, brother, there are thousands among the Jews who have believed. So these are Jewish people who now have placed their faith in Jesus. They're Jewish believers. And they're zealous for the law. So they are believers who still want to keep the law. They've come to faith in Christ, but they're saying the Mosaic law, everything we had in our past, everything we've been trained to do, everything we've participated in, we still need to keep. And so I would describe these as weaker brothers. They haven't fully understood the significance of Christ and what he's done for them. And so they've got one foot in Judaism, one foot in Christianity. They're dancing back and forth, so to speak. But they have trusted Christ. I mean, he calls them brothers. These are folks that have come to faith in Christ. They have believed. And here's the problem. They have been told about you. They've been told about you. Well, who told them what? I mean, who's out there talking and gossiping and spreading false lies and accusations and innuendos and rumors? Who are the infamous they? You know, three decades into ministry, I've heard about they often. Hey, Gary, if y'all lead this way, they will, uh, they will, and they will. The infamous they. Usually the they is the person coming to me or emailing me. But, but I mean, that's what happens. Somebody's talking, somebody's blabbing, somebody's spreading false accusations, innuendos, and lies about Paul. So one second they're giving God glory and they say, oh, Paul, oh, Paul, by the way, uh, not everybody is excited as we are about you being here. In fact, the accusations, look at verse 21. There's a threefold accusation against Paul. Number one, you're teaching the Jews who live among the Gentiles, number one, to forsake Moses. Number two, you're telling their children not to be circumcised. Number three, you're telling them not to walk according to the customs. So as Paul has gone to these Gentile regions, he's gone to Greece, Macedonia, Asia Minor, in those Gentile regions, they're Jews. These Jews come to faith in Christ. And they said, Paul, we've got a problem. When these Jewish people come to faith in Christ, we have heard, they have said, what they said, Paul, is the things that mark us out as being Jews, you're telling the Jews not to participate in when they come to faith in Christ. You're telling them not to follow the law of Moses anymore, to forsake Moses. You're telling them not to circumcise their kids anymore. And you're telling them to to not follow the customs anymore. The customs would be the traditions, the feasts, the festivals, kosher eating, the dietary laws, all those things. They said, Paul, we've got a problem with you. Basically, you're forsaking the things that marked a Jew as a Jew. Paul, did you teach those things? If you study the scriptures, the answer is no. Paul didn't teach that. Now, he said Gentiles didn't have to do those things. If you were a Gentile, you came to faith in Christ, and you were a male, you didn't have to get circumcised. You didn't have to get circumcised, to become a Jew, then a Christian. He said you trust Christ as your Savior. You don't have to follow the Jewish laws and traditions. They don't have to keep the feast. They don't have to do the festivals. They don't have to do all those things. And so Paul never taught that. Paul never told Jews to forsake all that. So Paul, we got a problem. They say, the infamous they say, You're doing these things. You're telling the Jewish believers not to do this anymore. 
And Paul was just the opposite. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9.20, Paul said to the Jews, I became as a Jew. When I was among the Jewish people, Paul ate kosher, I'm convinced. I, I mean, there were times that he knew he had freedom not to do it, but, but, but he limited his freedom. And I would imagine he observed the feasts, he observed the festivals. I, I imagine when he was with the Jewish people in Jerusalem, in fact, he said he wanted to get there. He had a, his time frame is he wanted to get there to celebrate that. So here's a question we have to ask ourselves. Why are they still clinging to these customs and rituals of the Old Covenant? I mean, you've got Jews, they come to faith in Jesus, and they still cling to these things of the Old Covenant, the Old Way. Why? Well, there are a few reasons. Number one, these are customs and rituals that have been established by God and they've been observing their whole life. I mean, God established those things in the Old Testament. They've been observing their whole life. They come to faith in Christ. And I think it's highly possible even today for a Jewish believer, even a Gentile believer, to still participate in things like feasts or festivals, to be involved in Passover. And you look to what Jesus means in each of those settings. I believe we see those things as symbolic, in no way efficacious, nothing you can reach salvation for. The law does not save you. Jesus saves you. And so God established that. And so they're clinging to this because it's part of what they had always done, part of what they had been, part of what God established. Secondly, the apostles and other leaders in the Jerusalem church did not oppose the continuation of those practices. Nowhere in the New Testament are Jewish believers condemned for observing these things. In fact, Paul says you have to tolerate the weaker brother. He's not commending the people that do those things. But he's saying they're weaker brothers and they haven't received the liberty yet not to participate in those things. So be patient with them. Be patient with them. You know, the Jerusalem council had established, look at verse 25, concerning the Gentiles who believed, we said that, that they should abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what strangled, from fornication. So the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 established that when Gentiles came to faith in Christ, they didn't become Jewish first and then Christian. They didn't have to observe all these things. You understand the struggle here? I mean, it's a real battle. These Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus. They recognize he is the promised Messiah. And when they come to faith in him, they've got a hard time making a clean break from everything in the past. Some of us struggle with that here. I mean, some of you grew up in traditions. You come to TBC and you say, where's the aisle call? I mean, where you grew up, people walked down the aisle to get saved, to join the church. And you're saying, how do people get saved around here? Hopefully the same way they get saved everywhere. They put their faith in Christ and Christ alone, but it's not as visible here. Uh, some of you are you know, used to Sunday school classes. The church is driven by Sunday school. We're driven more by small groups. We have Sunday school classes, but, but, but we're going to push you towards small groups as much as we possibly can. Some of you said, me and church we came from, they had committees. They had committees and everything. In fact, I remember my dad called me one time from New Orleans when they were living down there before they came to live with us. He said, I've just been elected to serve on the committee on committees. The what? We're in the committee that oversees all the other committees. I don't mean, know why those other committees exist if you've got to oversee them. I mean, what's the point of it all? And some of you come from those backgrounds. Some of you come from backgrounds where uh, you, you pass an offering plate and you're saying, how do we give around here? Believe me, we can accommodate you in that area. I haven't heard any complaints about it, though. Uh, some of you said, well, we come from a tradition where we take communion weekly, and here it's once a month. 
And so that's been an adjustment for you. That's from your past. Some of you say, man, we came from a, a church that was much more formal. I mean, uh, our church was much more formal. I look around here, there are people in shorts, people in jeans, and, you know, I, I'm a coat and tie kind of guy. I'm a uh, whatever. And so it took some adjustment, or maybe you're still adjusting. For, for some of you, you know, come from a background where when you walked into the church, it was like a, like a funeral home. Everybody's quiet and hushed, and you walk in here, everybody's high-fiving and greeting and talking. With so changes had to be made. What I miss the most in my background, potluck suppers. <laughs> Man, those Baptist women could cook, I'm going to tell you. In, in New Orleans, you'd go down the line, it'd be jambalaya, gumbo, shrimp creole, shrimp etouffee. I mean, I get hungry talking about that. I mean, it wasn't none of this fajita and barbecue stuff. I'm talking real seafood. I mean, it was, a, and it was, it was to see who could cook the best. And so for a little fat teenager, it was wonderful, I'm telling you. <laughs> It was hard for me to break from that. Hey, that's the problem here. That's the problem here. I mean, don't laugh that hard at it. It wasn't meant. <laughs> I mean, the problem is their whole life, their whole life has been consumed with Judaism. The calendar was the calendar by the feasts and the festivals. They went to the temple all the time. And now Christ comes in, he lives his life. He becomes the ultimate sacrifice as the true Messiah, truly God, truly man. He fulfills the law, Matthew chapter 5. But they've got a hard time breaking from it. Can you understand that? I mean, can't you see how difficult that is? That's why Paul taught so many times what he taught about you don't have to keep the law. We're not under the law. Christ fulfilled the law, the book of Galatians. Paul's a guy who wrote Romans. And so there's this battle, this transitional battle taking place. So there's the problem presented. Paul, we've got these folks, they have heard that you are teaching these three things. We don't follow Moses anymore. You don't have them circumcised anymore. And you don't walk according to the custom. So, Paul, here's a suggested solution. Paul, maybe to, for the unity of the body, let me offer you a suggestion. What is it? Well, they're going to hear you came, verse 22. So here's what we suggest. These are the elders of Jerusalem. We have four men who are under a vow. So take these men, purify yourself along with them. I, I'm thinking Paul needs to be purified because he's been in Gentile lands the whole time. Purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses so they might shave their heads. So this is a, a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was taken by someone who wanted to do some special service or be set apart for a season, usually not a lifetime. <clears throat> and he said, we've got four young men. They're taking the Nazarite vow. You go in with them. You pay the expenses. That is, you pay for them to shave your heads. I like that statement in the scriptures. And uh, he says, all who know that there's nothing to the things which have been said about you, uh, but that you yourself walk heartily and you keep the law. What? Paul? I mean, if I'm Paul right now, I'm saying, what are, you tell, what are you asking me to do? You want me to go back into the temple, pay for these guys, pay for their sacrifices, pay for their haircut, they're going to take the Nazarite value. You want me to go back in the temple to do all that? <clears throat> Verse 26. So Paul took them in. The next day, he purified himself along with them. He went where? Into the what? Into the temple. Why? To give notice of the completion of the days until the what? 
sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Paul, you went in the temple? Sacrifices were offered on your behalf? And you paid for it? There's a great trivia question for you. 99% of the people in, in churches will get it wrong. Did Paul ever go back in the temple and have anything sacrificed on his behalf? The answer is yes. You just read it right there. What in the world is happening here? I mean, Paul, aren't you the guy that wrote that Christ is sufficient, Christ is everything, Christ is the fulfillment of it all? But aren't you the guy that... In Colossians, don't you say we no longer that the festival and feast are nothing? And in First Corinthians, you say circumcision is nothing? And now you're going back in the temple and you're paying for guys? Paul, why in the world would you do that? Why would you let sacrifices be offered on your behalf? I don't have the answer, so you guys do a little reading at home. And... Now, there's an answer. Quite frankly, it's an answer some of you aren't going to like. I mean, when you read through this, Paul was a man who was willing to compromise for the sake of souls. Not sin, but compromise. For some of you, the word compromise is a nasty word. It's a dirty word. It's a word you don't want in your vocabulary. Paul is compromising. You can't get away from that. He's compromising for the sake of the gospel and for the unity of the church. He's not doing anything sinful. He's not in there sacrificing so that somehow his heart will be right with God. But he's willing to say, you know, for the Jewish brothers, they think I'm doing these things. They think I'm telling people not to keep the traditions. I'll go in the temple, as you suggest. I'll pay for these guys' purification, and I'll let sacrifices be made on my behalf. And Paul recognized all that was symbolic about Jesus. He wrote about it. He knew about it. So let me comment on two things. First of all, Paul's sacrifice, and secondly, Paul's humility. His compromise and his humility. His compromise. At TBC, we will not compromise over essential doctrines. There are doctrines that we refuse to compromise over. You can go to the website, you can read our statement of faith. There are doctrines we will never compromise over. But we will compromise over personal preferences for the sake of the kingdom of God and the gospel. We will do that. We will do that. And I think we have to do that in the culture we live in. Now, does that mean we're, we're going we're to embrace things we shouldn't? No, we're not going to sin. We're going to be like Paul. We are willing to compromise in certain areas for the sake of the gospel. Now, compromise can be costly. We all know that. There's a New York family that uh, wanted to move to a Texas ranch and raise their kids there, so they bought a big old ranch, and uh, friends came to visit them about six months after they got there, and the friend said, what's the name of your ranch? And the would-be cattleman said this, uh, well, I wanted the name Board J, my wife wanted Susie Q, uh, my, old son, my older son wanted Flying W, my daughter wanted Lazy Y, so we're calling it the Board J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. So where are the cattle? We don't have any. None of them have survived the branding so far. (laughs) That's that's a a costly compromise right there. But what is Paul doing here? Well, this is the guy who wrote Romans, the book of Romans. Dave Tate brought that up two weeks ago. In the book of Romans, in the ninth chapter, the third verse, it says this, Paul's writing, I wish that I myself were accursed 
that is separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If you read that section, Paul's saying, I would go to hell if my people would turn to Jesus. I would go to hell. I would forsake myself for the sake of the gospel. Wow. You talk about costly sacrifice. You see, Paul had such a heart for the unity of the body of Christ and for the souls of people who were headed to Christless eternity that he said, if it takes gone into the temple and paying for a vow and letting a sacrifice be done on my behalf so I don't divide the church and I have the right to speak, I'm going to do it. And some of you look, look at that, and if you were honest, you would say, I couldn't do that. Couldn't do it. Too costly. And if you go back and read Paul, he's very clear. He says, this is not the pathway to follow. In fact, the temple would fall in 70 AD, sacrificial systems gone, etc. But I think it was a battle. It was a battle for some of us to leave our traditions. It was a battle for Judaism to leave their traditions. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand what Paul is doing. He is not seeking to find his salvation back in Judaism. He's not going back in the Judaism. But he's saying, you know, I can do these things, and he says, with a clear conscience. If you look, chapter 23, verse 1, he said, I've done all this with a clear conscience. Second thing you can't help but notice here is Paul's humility. I mean, don't you wonder if he had a copy of Romans in his pocket and said, have you guys not read this? Or 1 Corinthians, have you guys not read this? We don't need to do that. But rather than just pull the scrolls out and teach them in his humility, he sacrificed his rights for the gospel. Humble man. Humble man. Humility is one of the greatest aspects, I believe, we as, one of the greatest characteristics we should have as believers. Alexander Strzok, on a book on biblical eldership, tells a story of a friend of his who was returning from a lifetime of service on the mission field. Happened back in the 1940s. There was a young man on the boat named Billy Graham. Billy Graham had just experienced the London Crusade. He, he had been known because of the Los Angeles Crusade that launched his career. He was becoming popular, becoming known around the world. Strzok writes, my friend was deeply touched by Dr. Graham's friendship. He was deeply touched by the questions he asked over and over about his life, about his ministry. He was genuinely interested in his work. My friend noted that uh, Dr. Graham rarely spoke about himself or the phenomenal experiences he had started having as an evangelist and the number of folks that had come to trust Christ in London in the previous months. He prayed for my friend, and my friend said, Dr. Graham, I'd like to pray for you. What can I pray? And he said, sir, would you pray that I remain a humble man? Here's Billy Graham. (laughs) Got a guy who's going to pray for him. We're going to pray for you. You become a humble man. That was decades ago. Billy Graham has enemies. Nobody accuses him, though, of being arrogant, prideful, or snooty. Even his enemies don't accuse him of that. And just like Paul was in this situation, Billy Graham has been that way. And I pray that we would be that way as well. I mean, when I look at Paul, I see a life of humility, a man who is willing to do it. Peter Marshall, the great chaplain of the Senate a number of years ago, said this, Lord, when we are wrong, make us willing to change, and when we're right, make us easy to live with. Good advice. Good advice. Humility. 
Pride comes before the fall, the scriptures tell us. Remember the story of a grandpa, he's rocking his four-year-old granddaughter. She keeps looking up at him, looking up at him. And then finally she looked at grandpa and said, you and God have something in common. And he said, I begin to figuratively polish my halo. And he said, what is that, sweetie? He said, you're both old. Pride comes before the fall. You know, the other thing that I see here, look at how Paul responded to those who attacked him. Rumors, innuendos, false accusation, outright rise. Lies. Not revenge. What revenge was it? With great humility. Let me say this about revenge. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you post on Facebook. Many of you communicate to me on Facebook. I look at Facebook about every day. Uh, it's the way I communicate. Many of you communicate with me, so I communicate back. So I've got to hop online. I've got to do it. And, uh, you know, when I look at my news feed, sometimes I think, you really writing that? Really? Is that, is that how you want to be seen in the community? Is that how you want to be perceived as a Christ follower? Ladies, let, me, let me say this to you. Be careful what you post there picture-wise, too. You wouldn't want your daughter being posted in some of the things you post yourselves on. Modesty. But we're talking revenge here. Some of you guys, I mean, I, I read that and say, really, is that how you think? Is, is that the way you want to be remembered? Is that what you want? Revenge. Paul is a guy. You remember Paul's advice? In Romans chapter 12, it's more than advice and an admonition from God's word. In Romans chapter 12, he says this about revenge. He says in Romans 12, verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse them not. You hear that? Even those who persecute you. And then he goes on and says, Never repay evil for evil. In, in fact, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In our day and age, I mean, if somebody blasts something about you, blabs something about you, a lie, a, 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 a false a rumor, an innuendo, a false accusation, what do we want to do? Man, we want to get even, don't we? We want to take revenge right away. We want to do something about it. It's a story of a young girl named Jennifer. Her wedding day was fast approaching. Everything was ready for the wedding. Nothing could dampen her spirits, even though her parents' uh, divorce had recently occurred and her father had married his secretary, Barbie, his new wife. Her mother, Sheila, finally found the perfect dress to wear to the wedding, and she was thrilled that she would be the best-dressed mother of the bride ever. So she was all excited about it. A week later, Jennifer, the bride, was horrified to find out that her new young stepmother, Barbie, had purchased the exact same dress. She asked Barbie to exchange a dress. She told her what was happening, and Barbie refused. She said, absolutely not. I'm going to wear that dress. I look stunning in it. So Jennifer went to her mom and explained what the situation was, and the mom said, never mind, dear. I'll get another dress. After all, it's your special day, not ours. And so they went dress shopping, and two weeks later, they found another dress that she would wear to the wedding. And as they were having lunch, Jennifer asked her mom, what are you going to do with that dress? I mean, it's a beautiful dress. Maybe you should return it. You don't have any place to wear it. The mom grinned and said, oh, yeah, I do. I'm going to wear it to the rehearsal dinner the night before the wedding. (laughs) And we say, yes! And Paul says, no, no, that's not how you live your life. You don't overcome evil with evil. You don't do stuff like that. You don't live that way. 
And so we see Paul's virtuous response. I mean, he goes in the temple and he humbly responds to the elders. Then we see a violent reaction. A second storm hits Paul. The first storm is from the Jewish believers. These are people who have come to faith in Christ. The next is from Judaizers. These are people who don't follow Christ. They're Jewish people who hate Paul. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing Paul in the temple, began to stir up the multitude. They laid hands on him. Here's their accusation in verse 28. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. And he preaches against the law. And he preaches against this place, this place being the temple. And besides, he even brought Greeks into the temple. He brought a Greek guy into the temple. For they had previously seen, verse 29, Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. He was a Gentile. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed, gossip, rumor, innuendo, false accusations. Paul wouldn't have done that. The the divider between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews had a sign on it. This is what it said here. That's the actual, uh, it's from Herod's temple, second temple, uh, in that you can't see it, but it's written in Greek, translated, it says, no foreigners go beyond the balustrade, that's the railing and the plaids of the temple zone. Whoever's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his own death. So if you brought a Greek or a Gentile or a Jew in the temple, you would die. You'd be killed for doing it. You'd be the one who went in and the one who did it. And so, but Paul didn't do that. I mean, but, but these are false accusations, innuendos, rumors, lies about Paul. Fourfold accusation. The second storm hits him, and it's interesting. Man, they grab him. Look at verse 39. Everybody's aroused in Jerusalem. The people rush together. They take Paul. They drag him out of the temple. They immediately close the doors, and they're seeking to kill him. I mean, they're beating him up. And all at once, verse 32, the Jewish believers want to kill Paul. The Jewish non-believers want to kill Paul. But pagan Roman soldiers protect Paul. At once, soldiers came, and the commander heard what was happening. Verse 32, they grabbed Paul, they ran down to him, and they stopped beating Paul when they saw him coming. And the commander came up, took hold of him, ordered him to be bound with chains, and they began asking him who he was and what he had done. And the crowd began shouting one thing and then another. And So it's mass hysteria, just mass hysteria. I mean, there's this violent reaction. The problem is he was a violated resident. Look at what happened. So when he got to the stairs, it so happened, this is verse 35, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. The multitude of the people kept crying out, away with him, away with him, away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And instead of speaking the Hebrew dialect or Aramaic, he spoke in Greek. Greek were the words of the educated. Greek were the words of the upper society in Jerusalem. And the commander looks at him, you speak Greek? You talk that way? You're not the Egyptian who caused a revolt and had 4,000 men of the assassins out in the way? You're not that guy? We thought you were the Egyptian and you were the guy who had led this revolt and all these people had been killed and you had all these soldiers. You're not him? No. I'm a Jew from Tarsus, Cilicia, citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you to allow me to speak to the people. See, Paul had been attacked, but God protected him, and he never, he never, ever gave up. Never gave up. So he wants to talk to the people. Sometimes you're watching a television program, and at the very end, you're waiting for the punchline, and it says... To be continued. I should have put that up there. 
We're going to look at Paul's speech next week. We're going to look at what he says to the people when he gets a, after he gives an, given an audience. So for the past weeks I've been thinking, why does Luke do all this? Luke's writing Acts. He could weave together anything that he wants in the early church. He's talking about the early church. And for weeks now, we've seen Paul being warned, being warned, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. But he says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to go there. I've got money to bring. I want to unite the church. I want to observe the festival that's coming up. I need to be in Jerusalem. And he goes anyway. And sure enough, he's attacked, he's beaten, everything that he'd been warned about, it happens. Paul was so driven for the sake of the gospel, so driven for the kingdom, so driven to see his people come to Christ that he would do anything for it. Anything. He desired to see the souls of men come to know Jesus. In fact, this is what he this is what he was willing to go through. This is Second Corinthians. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? That's insane. I'm more so. I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the Jewish 39 lashes. That's scourging. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the ocean. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I'm saying, Paul, give up, man. You're in danger every place you go. I've been in labor, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, without food, cold and exposed. Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure of me my concern for the churches. Wow. Paul, give up. Not part of his vocabulary. Not part of his vocabulary. When I look at Paul, I see a man was protected by God, never gave up. He was never distracted for the sake of the gospel. Hey, I've got to go in the temple, pay a vow, I'll do it. In fact, I would go to hell for the sake of my people if I could. Let me share my heart with you for a second and then we'll go home. My heart's been troubled in the past couple of weeks. I've been studying these passages We've been preparing for baptism, comes up next week. And one of the things I've noticed in the last several months, I always hear stories about people when they come to faith in Christ. Either you email me, you come and tell me, they come up to their service and pray with me, something happens. So I'm studying this passage about Paul willing to do everything for the sake of the gospel. Interviewing folks for baptism, about a dozen folks getting baptized. And I'm thinking, I don't hear many stories of people coming to know Christ anymore. I don't hear those. I asked my staff, how many of you guys know if somebody came to Christ in the last three months in your sphere? Nobody. I asked my elders, how many of you guys, we met Wednesday night, how many of you guys can tell me a story of somebody who came to know Jesus in the last three months? Nobody. Nobody. My heart's broken. Just broken. What are we about? See, my contention is most of us, when we find a community to be a part of, we're happy there. 
I'm not really concerned about lost people anymore. We found our niche, found our place, and we're happy. Paul says, I'll go in the temple and sacrifice or have sacrifices offered on my behalf. I'll go to hell if I can for my brethren. God, I want a passion like that. But my heart tells me, I don't want to be the emperor's new clothes saying everything's good, everything's good, everything's good. When That's a problem. So I'm going to ask you to do this. You came to faith in the last few months. Would you email me this week? Let me know that. Somebody's come to Christ that you've been know about or you've had the opportunity to lead to faith. Would you let me know that? Otherwise, there are a few empty seats around summertime. Bring them with you. Share Christ with them. Let them know that there's a Savior who died for them. Don't be embarrassed about Jesus. Paul stood up and got beat for it. What about us? Father, we pray that we have a heart like that. We pray many will be added to the kingdom. We pray you give us hearts for that. And Father, we pray for hearts of humility, hearts willing to compromise on non-essentials, passion for lost. In Jesus' name, amen.